Okay, we're on. Good evening, everyone. That was a bit of a cold reception. It's fine, I'll just keep going. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we speak about the glorious resurrection of the body tonight, I pray that you'd encourage our hearts, that you are a faithful God and that you will be faithful to the very end, that we will be raised physically and that we will live with you in the new heaven, the new earth for all eternity, and that we've been saved for this very purpose. God, I pray you would encourage us by the Spirit tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, John Wesley the um, you know, founder of the Methodist movement, he made this statement. He said, our people die well. Wonderful little statement. Our people die well. Why do we die well as Christians? I want to suggest three reasons to you tonight why we die well, and I'm hopefully going to present you with all sorts of evidence to prove these three things to you. We die well, first of all, because... We die with courage. And secondly, because we die with righteousness or godliness. And thirdly, that we die with hope. So, a little bit different this evening. I want to read to you from uh, Eusebius's ecclesiastical history. Eusebius, is, uh, as Tomo reminded me before the service began, he's the second great... Christian historian after Luke, who wrote the Luke Acts document, uh, Eusebius wrote uh, this book up until the year 324. So he covered the first 300 years of the church. And uh, within this book, Church Histories, he uh, documents some of the, the initial martyrdoms that took place under the Roman emperors. Uh, there was about a 250-year period where uh, Christianity was uh, severely uh, persecuted in the Roman Empire. And sometimes it was in pockets. It wasn't a constant thing for 250 years. But uh, there were um, moments and spikes in these terrible persecutions. And um, the very first martyrology that we have, a martyrology is just a, 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 an eyewitness account of a, of, a, of a martyrdom. The very first eyewitness account we have is of of a man by the name of Polycarp being, uh, being martyred. Now, I don't know about you, but I never had any friends called Polycarp. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, the <laughs> my, my next son will be Polycarp, Johnston. Um, so what I want to do is I want to read the account of the death of Polycarp. Now, bear in mind as I read this to you that Polycarp was an 86-year-old man, and he was... Uh, revered in the Christian church. He was the bishop of a, a place called Smyrna. And uh, what happened was they were chasing down Christians in his area. He refused to leave the area. And some of his congregants convinced him at least to go to a, a neighboring farm and stay on that farm premises where things perhaps weren't going to be so dangerous. Uh, however, the Roman soldiers did find him. And when he met them at the door... They, they said, where's Polycarp? And he said, well, I'm Polycarp. Come on in. You guys must be cold and hungry. I know you need to take me and that I'm going to die now, but I'd like to serve you a meal. And he served these three men a meal, these Roman soldiers. They were amazed by his grace, uh, by his kindness. And he just asked them for an hour uh, to be able to pray. 
They said to him, that's fine, you can take the time. He prayed for an hour, and I'm going to read to you what happened as he rose from prayer. Finally, he finished his prayer after remembering all with whom he had ever come into contact, small or great, famous or obscure, and the whole Catholic church, Catholic at the time just meant universal, throughout the world. When the hour for departure had come, they set him on a donkey and led him into the city on a great Sabbath. Herod, the chief of police, and his father Nicetes met him and transferred him into their carriage. Sitting beside him, they tried to persuade him, what harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and sacrificing, and so be saved? All you have to do is just say, Lord Caesar, and we'll let you go. What harm can there be? At first he did not answer them, but when they persisted, he said, I will not do as you advise. Threats now replaced persuasion, and they ejected him so quickly that he scraped his shin in getting down from the carriage. But he walked on briskly to the stadium, as if nothing had happened. There the noise was so great that no one could be heard. When Polycarp entered the stadium, a voice from heaven said, Be strong and play the man, Polycarp. No one saw the speaker, but many of our people who were there heard the voice. As word spread that Polycarp had been arrested, there was a tremendous roar. When he approached, the proconsul asked him if he were Polycarp. And after he admitted it, he tried to dissuade him, saying, Respect your years. Swear by Caesar's fortune. Recant and say, Away with the atheists. Interesting, in earliest times, in, in those early Roman times, Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe in all of the plethora of the Roman gods, and they refused to partake in, in all of the public festivities and the pagan festivals. So they were called atheists. So this proconsul says to Polycarp, just say away with the atheists, and I'll let you go. Polycarp swept his hand across the crowd, sighed, looked up to heaven, and cried out, away with the atheists, as he pointed to the people in the crowd. Hey? This is an 86-year-old dude that I would love to have met. <clears throat> well, we will meet him one day. Um, but the governor pressed him, take the oath and I will set you free. Curse Christ. But Polycarp replied, listen to this, it's beautiful. For 86 years I have been his servant and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Our people die with courage. But when he persisted, swear by Caesar's fortune, Polycarp replied, if you suppose that I could do this pretending not to know who I am, listen carefully to me. I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn the teachings of Christianity, choose a day and you will hear them. He starts preaching to this guy. The proconsul replied, persuade the people, preach to the people. Polycarp responded, you would be worthy of such a discussion, for we have been taught to render appropriate honor to rulers and authorities ordained by God if it does not compromise us. As for the people, I don't feel a defense is appropriate. So the proconsul said, I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them if you don't change your mind. Call them, he said, for we cannot change our mind from better to worse, but to change from cruelty to justice is excellent. Preaching again to this proconsul. Again, he counted, if you disregard the beasts I will consume, I'll have you consumed by fire unless you repent. 
but Polycarp declared, You threaten a fire that burns for a time and is quickly extinguished. Yet a fire that you know nothing about awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in eternal punishment. But what are you waiting for? Do as you will. Eh? Our people die with courage. That's my first point tonight. And it's a good point. <laughs> then, uh, if you will, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is, uh, we die with, with godliness, a righteousness. This is why we die well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll start reading from verse 12. <clears throat> this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians. He says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some say among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Interesting, Paul says, How do some among you as Christians, among the church in Corinth, how can some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Uh, I was speaking to a Presbyterian minister uh, a couple of days ago. He's up in Pretoria. And um, he's feeling a little bit discouraged, a little bit lonely within his denomination. And I said to him, Gary, when you have a, like a synod of Presbyterian ministers, how many people within the room, what sort of percentage would you say are actually born again? And he said to me, 15 to 20%. And he said, there's many Presbyterian ministers now that are actually teaching that there is no resurrection from the dead. Same problem I had in Corinth. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. <clears throat> and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ... We are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by, by man, Adam, came death, by man, Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Skip down to verse 29. Otherwise... What will they do who are baptized for the dead? Interesting turn of phrase. The uh, commentators are all over the place on what that means. You can go and read up on it in your own time. Perhaps it, it just means that baptism is a picture of the resurrection. When we come out of the waters of baptism, it is a picture of our coming alive with Christ and the final day of the resurrection. And so when we're baptized, it's, it's in effect we are being baptized for the dead, so that we will be raised. That's one explanation of it. There are others. Said, uh, why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, 
I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought beasts at Ephesus, now that's another little turn of phrase which there's speculation over what Paul meant by that, if I fought beasts at Ephesus, and many believe that at some point in Paul's travels he was actually thrown to the beasts, but they just refused to eat him, and he escaped it. We do have testimonies of other people that went through that, where the beasts just walked past them and would not touch them. What advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, where does Paul get that from? If you've got a a Bible that references Old Testament quotations, you'll see a reference there to Isaiah chapter 22. And I want to take you back to Isaiah chapter 22 now, because I want us to get the sense of where Paul is quoting that little verse from. Uh, If the dead do not rise, and then he quotes, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So please turn to Isaiah chapter 22. And we'll start reading from verse 8. Anytime you see a, a quotation from the Old Testament in the New Testament, it's always worth going back to that Old Testament scripture and reading that quotation in its context because it gives you a much fuller sense of why the New Testament apostolic writer picked that verse to quote at that moment. Always a good practice. Isaiah 22 verse 8 Uh, Isaiah is speaking about the destruction of the nation of Judah because of their wickedness. And he says, God removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great, and you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. You also made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. So Isaiah is saying to the people of Judah, when, when Jerusalem is, is attacked by its enemies, what they will do is they will do everything in their own strength to protect themselves. They, they, um, they go to the armory of the forest, they try to find all the weapons that have been made, that have been covered in the armory or hidden in the armory, they, they start breaking down the houses, they, they count the houses, all right, how many houses do we need, we can put two families in that house, we break down that house because we need uh, wood and bricks to fortify the wall, we're going to build a reservoir between the inner and the outer wall of Jerusalem so that it can feed the pool the great pool for drinking water. They're making all these plans and schemes in their own minds, and yet they did not look to the maker, their maker. They did not look to the one who would save them. I'm going to draw some parallels to the gospel just now. Verse 12, and in that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth, but instead joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There it is. There's that that little phrase that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15. So what's the, what's the, the context there? Three things that the people of Judah did to respond to the attack that they were under. 
They were facing an enemy that they could not defeat, and they knew that their time was running out. Imagine being in a city that is totally surrounded. You've only got so much food and so much water, and you know that it is inevitable that the city will be taken. That's the position they were in. Time was running out. If you look at verses 8 to 11, you'll see that they tried to delay the inevitable in their own strength without seeking God for deliverance. And thirdly, they did not obey the calls of the prophets. God had said to them that they should repent, that they should gird themselves with sackcloth and, and ashes, and they should be mourning, and yet they refused to do so. Instead of mourning and sackcloth and ashes and, and, and uh, fasting, they gave themselves to feasting and slaying cattle and, and uh, having a momentous party. Why? Because tomorrow we die. Let's eat and drink and let's have as best a time we can because the city is going to get taken and we're going to get killed. And that's exactly what Paul says because he uses that as an analogy of the state of man today. First of all, we are also facing an enemy that we cannot defeat. We are inside a walled city that is being besieged and it is only a matter of time until the city is taken. Every person in this room is going to die. We are facing an enemy that we cannot defeat. Same as they were. It is inevitable. Secondly, just as they tried to delay the inevitable in their own strength, so it is that people try to delay this whole reckoning with death. I don't know when last you got into a conversation with a friend of yours who's an unbeliever and you've tried, to, you've tried to reason with the person about this truth, this inevitability of death and what is going to happen to you when you die. First of all, people try to delay that by being obsessed about their health and what they eat. And, and actually, if you look at the health statistics, we're no more healthy today than we were 100 years ago. There's more obesity, there's more heart disease, there's more um, uh, deaths by, you know, um, what's the sugar thing? Diabetes-related deaths. <sighs> it's a clever church, eh, Tomo? I mean, all this stuff, this obsession with organic this and organic. People are trying to delay what they know is coming. I'm not saying don't eat healthily. I'm just saying don't live in a bubble. Don't bury your head in the sand. You are going to die. What's going to happen when you die? And then people also don't want to engage on the, on the subject of death. They either say, well, I've lived a pretty good life and, you know, I think I'll be okay. You know, how anyone can approach death with, I think I'll be okay, amazes me. People just don't want to reckon with this, this thing. Just like the people in Judah. And then lastly, just like the people of Judah had a choice, they could either seek God and do as God had directed them to do, which was to repent, to, to clothe themselves in sackcloth and in ashes and to fast and to seek God and repent of their sins. But you know what? They did not have enough faith that either God was powerful enough to deliver them of their enemies or faithful enough to, to, to honor 
the obedience to his command to repent. Those are the only two possibilities. When you, when you are sitting in a city and you know that your, your wife and your children may just be raped and killed and you will be killed yourself, and you still refuse to listen to the voice of the prophets, it's either because you don't believe or you don't trust. And that's the same today. Because God has shown us what to do to be saved. In the gospel, He's shown us, he, he has, he's, he's told us, He sent His Son to die for us. That His Son died in our place. That His Son took our sin upon Himself. He crushed His Son in our place. And if we will put our faith in Jesus Christ and come with a heart of repentance, and we will receive Him as our Savior, we will be saved. Now, there's only two reasons why people won't believe that, or they won't do that, either because they don't believe that God has the power to raise the dead. They actually just don't believe. Or they don't trust that God can be trusted when He says, if you will believe in My Son, I will forgive you and I will raise you from the dead. Because it is such a crazy statement. It's like being in a, in a, in a, in a city that's besieged and you're about to be taken by your enemy and the prophets say, fast, repent, and God will deliver you. It makes no sense to the earthly mind, but will you believe? Because that's what the gospel says. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And you will be raised from the dead. There will come a day where you'll be raised from the dead. Physical resurrection. Incredible promise. Promise of the resurrection. So we must learn from Israel that despite the great danger we're in, where they refuse to seek God, we must seek God. Where they refuse to repent, we must repent and believe. So that's the second point on the resurrection or why our people die well. They die well because they die with holiness. We don't live as those who eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul says that if you don't believe that God has the power to raise the dead, if you don't believe that, that even if a body has been cremated and they've scattered the ashes to the four winds of heaven, that God does not have the power to gather those ashes together and create a new body for you. If you don't believe that, then the Bible has some advice for you. Let your life descend into hedonistic pleasure. Eat and drink and enjoy every kind of sexual and, and, uh, and selfish and hedonistic pleasure you can because your time is running out and this life is all there is. That's the Bible's advice to you. But if you do believe in the resurrection, what it does is it infuses a self-discipline and a righteousness into the heart of a believer. We don't eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We seek God and we obey and we live lives that are clean and pure and we don't cheat at work and we don't cheat on our taxes and we don't cheat on our husband or our wife and we're honest in all of our dealings. We, we, we live this way as Christians because we have a hope that we will be raised from the dead. We live with hope. And then that's the third point, that we 
die well because we die with hope. A few random verses, David said this, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. That's a pretty good theology of the resurrection from David. Job said this, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Incredible. How my heart yearns within me. Daniel, uh, the angel that was encouraging Daniel at the very end, I think this is the last verse in Daniel, the second last verse. He says to Daniel, You, Daniel, go your way until the end, for you shall rest, you'll die, and you will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. And then lastly, I just want to finish with 1 Thessalonians. This is such a great uh, scripture on the resurrection. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'll read to you from verse 13. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. You know, God does not want us to be ignorant about the fact of the resurrection of the body. Because ignorance doesn't glorify God. Truth glorifies God. He wants us to be people of truth and reason. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. And Paul often uses that strange term to describe those who have died. In fact, Jesus used it of Lazarus. He said, our friend Lazarus is sleeping. And actually he had died. And this is sleep not in the sense of some kind of uh, soul sleep that's sometimes taught that after a Christian dies, that they then are in oblivion. They aren't aware. They're unconscious until the day of the resurrection. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says uh, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. But this is sleep in the sense of, of rest. After a long day's labor, we will rest from our labors in this life. And sleep in the sense that there is an awakening. Sleep is not sleep unless there is an awakening from sleep. And as sure as the sun shines there will be an awakening for our sleep for those of us who have died. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. Lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. I don't know if you know people who have lost a child or lost a loved one, uh, people who are not Christians. One of the most devastating things to see is an unbelieving family that lose a loved one. Because there is utter hopelessness. There is utter despair in their eyes. You go to the funeral and you try to console them, but you can see there is absolutely no sense or hope or, or light in the situation. They are utterly depressed. I remember when I was at school, uh, I had a very good friend who died in a car accident when he was 19 years old. He died together with his brother, only his sister survived them. 
came from an unbelieving family. And that mother and father to this day, this is 20 years ago, have not recovered. It absolutely crushed them. God doesn't want us to live like that. He doesn't want that to be our way of life. He says he doesn't want us to mourn and sorrow as those who have no hope. We have hope when our loved ones die. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who sleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. They will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So we die with hope. We die well, we die with courage, we die with hope, and we die with a godliness, a righteousness. Amen.